Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, grab them and go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians and chapter number four this morning. Galatians and chapter four. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one near or around you in the back of the seat, perhaps in front of you, or maybe the back of the seat behind you. And what we would encourage you to do this morning is to pick up that copy of God's Word and follow along with us there. We want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word in your hand as we study God's Word together this morning. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible at all at home, that would be our gift to you. We would want you to take that with you when you go. Uh, you won't have to feel bad about that. Some people go, hey, I'm trying to steal the Bible out of the church. All right? You're not stealing it. If you don't have one, you can take it. Okay? And uh, we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand throughout the rest of your week. And if you have your Bibles and you're there already, the book of Galatians chapter number four. So it's the big number four. And you're looking for the name Galatians across the top of the page. If you found it and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word? Galatians chapter 4. And you're going to look down at little number 16. Galatians chapter 4, verse 16. That's how you call that. The little number is verse 16. We're going to go verse number 16 down to verse number 20. Galatians chapter 4, verse 16 down to verse 20. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. In my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Man, I want to talk a little bit this morning on the end of verse number 19. Until Christ be formed in you. Until Christ be formed in you. And that little phrase can be, man, how we understand our Christian life. Man, that Christ would be formed in us. This is, this is the goal of preaching. This is the goal of church attendance. This is the goal of Bible reading and prayer. I mean, this is the goal, that Christ would be formed in us. So how is it then that Christ is formed in us? That's what we'll talk about this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our hearts and lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Paul is writing this letter to the church in the area of the world known as Galatia. That's why it's called Galatians. So it's a letter from a pastor to the churches. And not just a pastor, but their pastor in particular. The pastor who planted those churches, started those churches, and delivered the gospel to the people that are now making up those churches. And so Paul is writing this letter to them. And as we've already discussed, there are those that have come into the church at Galatia and they're preaching another gospel. 
And they're saying that there is another way in which you can be made right with God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What these false teachers are saying is that, sure, you need to have faith, but you also need to have good works, and you need to have religiousness, and you need to have morality. And if you have these things as well as faith, and if you have enough of them, then in the end, you might be saved. And what Paul says is, no, and that is not the gospel. It's not just another gospel. It's no gospel at all. Where the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone, and you will be made right with God. You are then saved. So we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are saved, and because we do belong to God, and because we are saved, man, there we should desire to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord, not so that God will love us, but because God has loved us. And that's what everything in the, in the book so far, that's what it's been about. And there's this group that's coming to the church, and they're teaching something exactly opposite of that. And so Paul is writing as a way, and he's expressing this concern about these errors in the church. In fact, if you really want to know what verse 16 to verse 20 are, it's a pastoral concern about errors that are taking place in the church. And just so you know, this is not just a day. This is not just something that happened in their day. Man, these are errors that are taking place in our day today. I stood there in Romania. I think we have some pictures that we want to show you. I stood there in Romania. And as we preached the gospel in Romania, all around that entire area, and all around that entire region, are churches who are preaching another gospel. I mean, they're saying that the way to be made right with God, the way to be pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, are religiousness, morality, civility, all these good works. And that you need these good works in order for God to be happy with you. And this is one of our meetings. It was a fantastic time. In fact, we had six of the missionaries that we support, six of them uh, showed up there at this meeting. Brother Graziano, Brother Young, who's a missionary in Russia. Of course, Brother Graziano, who's in Estonia. We had several of our missionaries from the UK that were there. It was a wonderful time. I think we have a, a few other pictures I wanted to show you. This was a fun adventure on Sunday evening. This would have been Sunday morning here, but Sunday evening there. Man, they took us out and we preached to a group of gypsies and and like real gypsies it was it was unbelievable not used in just a derogatory program but actually this 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 group of people this group this gypsy group of people, outdoor meeting we're standing there preaching over here were horses running around were pigs dogs were running through the building even children with no clothes on they were just like running through it was the most difficult church environment i've ever preached in but we had a, we had a wonderful time preached the gospel one lady was saved she accepted jesus christ as her savior this was a uh, a, a a pastor in the Ukraine. And sometimes you wonder, man, is God at work in other places in the world? And the answer is yes. 
Hey, this is a guy who heard about the meeting. He drove down on his own. He had no idea what was taking place. He just heard that there was a group of pastors coming from the States, and he wanted to be a part of it, so he drove down. He met us there at the, at the meeting. Man, he's a wonderful, guy, wonderful man. The Lord is really using him. Man, preaching the gospel there in Romania, or in the Ukraine. But here are the churches I wanted to show you. Man, this is, this is, uh, uh, this, uh, this is, this is our stop in London, okay? They, they, this church is uh, actually Spurgeon's church, Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached. It still stands to this day. And I thought, what a testimony. Man, this is what we desire for First Baptist Church Long Beach, right? Man, that First Baptist Church Long Beach will be standing long after you and I are dead and gone preaching the gospel. Go to the other slides there. Uh, this is the uh, Timishore Orthodox Cathedral. This was right up the road from where our meeting was. And one morning I walked down the road. They, they, they had their call to mass. They were ringing the bells. And so I decided to go in. I wanted to hear what they were doing inside of there. And as I walk into the back of this building, there were several priests that were walking prayer station to prayer station. And they had these uh, candles and these, these jars of incense with bells. They were, someone was reading a prayer over the, the loudspeaker as this priest went place to place. And men and women, by, by the hundreds, were just streaming into this cathedral. There were no chairs like this. They're just, if, this were the, if this were the cathedral, there would be individual prayer stations or places. And most of these prayer stations or places were, were, um, were, were uh, the caskets or the entombment of, of dead priests or, or fathers that had served in this place. And the priest went individual spot to spot, and people went place to place. They would kiss the feet and then kiss the hands and then kiss the head of each of these individual places as they preached the gospel. And as I stood in the back of this place and watch this service take place. Man, I was reminded of where the Apostle Paul says, we do not serve a dead and buried Savior. No, we don't pray to the dead. Man, our Savior is alive and well. And if Jesus did not resurrect from the grave, well, then what good is it? You know, what is our faith if Jesus is dead? Well, how good is it to put your faith in a dead man? We need someone who is, who is more infinite than us in this regard. I stood in the back of the church and I watched as these men and women said, man, this is what you must do in order to be made right with God. Man, you must come to weekly mass. You must do good. You must do all these things. This is, um, this is a Jewish synagogue in Budapest. It's the largest, it's the largest Jewish synagogue in the entire uh, European area. It's the second largest in the world. We, st we, we stood outside of the, the synagogue as well and watched these uh, men and women going into this synagogue. Man, same thing. This is the exact thing that was happening inside the church of Galatia, where there was, man, you must follow the commandments. You must do good. You must be circumcised. You must do all these rituals and religiousness in order to be saved. And Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and he's combating this very idea right here. This is not something that was just prevalent in their day. This is something that is prevalent and very relevant in our day and age today. And here's what Paul is, here's what we've already, we've already stated this. Paul has said that those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith, through grace, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have been justified. And we, we talked about how Paul gives us this image of what it means to be justified. That the gavel, God hammers down on his holy desk and God declares you and I who were guilty, he declares us innocent because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that we are declared righteous. And so we talked about this idea early on in Galatians chapter 3, how that we are justified, that right where you are, right where you sit, right where you stand today, and you say, Pastor, you have no idea what I did last night. You have no idea how of a horrible person I am. You have no idea what kind of a mess I've made. But listen, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus did not die on the cross, and now you have to get yourself good so that he will love you. May he loves you right where you sit and stand today. And we talk about this is justified in how that in that moment, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, man, God sent his spirit into your heart, and you were made right with God. Michael, can you help me, th help me this morning? Man, you were, you were right here at this moment. You were, you were justified. You were made right with God with God so that when God looks at you even this very moment he does not see you and me he sees his son the Lord Jesus Christ we're justified and Paul says that's not the only thing God did God justified us he declared us right the image of a judge slamming the gavel down and saying you're righteous in my sight we who were guilty we who had a debt we who had broken God's law, because of our faith and trust in Christ, we were declared righteous. That's a really big word for justified. That when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you were made right in the sight of God. But, we, but, but Paul didn't say only that. Paul said, not only are you justified, but in justification, God adopted you into his family. And God claimed you as his own. So that God doesn't bring you in and say, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're as the judge and slams the gavel down and declares you right. He says, not only that, but now I am your father. I, I don't want to go fishing with the judge, but I want to go fishing with my dad. I don't want to play catch with the judge, but I want to play catch with my dad. I don't want to sit around and chat with the judge, but I do want to sit and talk with my father. And there's this idea of a personal relationship we have with God as our father now. And we're his sons. And he, what he says is, you're not just justified, but you're also adopted. That when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you were justified, made right. Even though we were guilty, we were made right in the sight of God. And now we're adopted into God's family. But he goes farther than that. He goes farther than that. Nate, come here. He goes farther than that, and he says this, that as the children of God, we become heirs to all that God has. And we talked about this idea, how that God has made us joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christian terms, that's called glorification. That the way it is is not the way that it will always be, but that God promises you and God promises me some good thing for us. It's where Jesus says, man, I'm going to my Father in heaven. And if I go to my Father who's in heaven, man, I will prepare a place for you. That right now God is working on a place for you and for me to be with him forever. So this is called glorification. And we talked about this inheritance that God desires to leave you and that God desires to leave me. And we have an inheritance that cannot be corrupted. It does not pass away. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be spent ahead of time. But it is reserved for you and me in eternity with God. That is glorification. And by the way, that's where all of us who are believers are headed to with God. So God's justified us. He's adopted us into his family. He's made us his sons. He's our father. And he has reserved for us some good thing. So here's, here it is. So what's this space in the middle? So what is this space in the middle? 
So this space in the middle is what we understand as sanctification. It's where Paul uses this phrase, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So that the minute you place your faith and trust in Christ, whether you were four or whether you were 40, the minute you place your faith and trust in Christ, you were justified, you were declared righteous from the judge of the universe, you were adopted into God's family, and he's reserved some good thing for you in eternity. And now you live in this space. So until you're made into who you're supposed to be, until we're given this glorified body, this is the place in Revelation where he says there's no more pain, there's no more hurt, there's no more tears, that we are in that moment as we were supposed to have been all along. Like the bat doesn't hurt anymore. How many of you would be thankful for that? It doesn't take so many cups of coffee to go, I mean, coffee will definitely be in heaven, but it doesn't take so many cups of coffee to get you through, right? He said, this is, what, this is where we're headed. This is where we're moving toward. This is what God has reserved for us. So what about right now? What about right now? The desire right now is this desire, that Christ would be formed in me, that he would be shaped, that he would be full, that he would have reign, that Christ would be formed in me. We were in a moment justified. We will be in a moment taken from this world and glorified, but we are in a lifelong process of being sanctified. So hear me on this point. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God, to use the Word of God, to help the children of God look like the Son of God. This is what God is doing in your life at this very moment right now. You say, okay, pastor, I get it. I'm saved, and I get it. There's eternity waiting for me. But what about right now? What does God want from me right now? God is molding and making and shaping you into, he's forming you into the image of his son. But hear me on this point. Sanctification is not an inevitable result of justification. Sanctification is not an inevitable result of sanctification. Just because you have been saved and just because you are adopted into his family, that does not mean that you are being formed into the image of his son. Yet this is something that we must pursue. This is something we must go after. This is where Paul says, man, that you would work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That you would learn to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That you would die to selfishness and self-justification. That you would not go after the desires of your own heart, but that you would lay down those desires and you would go after the heart of God for you. This is where it's at for you and for me. This is what the idea of sanctification is. Thank both of you. And we should be careful about anticipating a future glorification while we are conveniently accommodating present sin in our heart and life. You are not safe when you are playing with sin. There used to be a lot of conversation about sanctification or godliness or holiness in the churches. It seems like anymore, these are words that you very rarely hear from a pulpit. 
It seems to me that messages on sanctification, purity, holiness, separation from the world, the, den the denial of fleshly selfish desires, that these messages are lacking. And instead, we get some kind of Tinkerbell message where we should just follow our heart and where we can legitimize all the selfish desires inside of us. It seems to me that the things of this world are being quickly incorporated into the life of the church as a way to attract those who have no interest in God and have a way to attract those who certainly have no interest in sanctification. The churches that were once lighthouses for the gospel of salvation by grace through faith are now filled with what Paul would call no gospel at all. In fact, that's where he's going to go in chapter 5 and chapter 6. So now that you are this, here's what should work out in your life. Deny your fleshly lust and walk in the Spirit. And that if you are walking in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Churches that were lighthouses for the Gospel are now filled with no Gospel at all. I have this picture of John Wesley's church. This is outside of this is Wesley's chapel in England. Some of you have been to London, you've been to England, you know exactly what I'm speaking of. At the foot of the statue, we, we can zoom in on it, but at the foot of the statue is Wesley's famous phrase that says, the world is my parish. This, we, we took a tour of Wesley's chapel, saw his pulpit, Man, we were in all kinds of beautiful places, we saw John Newton's pulpit, all kinds of wonderful churches where the gospel was delivered. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And inside of almost every church we visited, we saw signs like this one. Pub Bible study. Okay, if you got justification, that's fine. Okay, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that's good. And now let's come and talk about Jesus while we kick back cold ones at the pub. Saw signs like this one. The inclusive church that we, the saying goes on, you can't read it on this one, but the saying goes on to say that we choose to not exclude anyone for any reason, for any purpose. That regardless of your morality, your, spiritually, your spirituality, your civility, and even your own sexuality, you are welcome to come and join with us here at this church. This is in Wesley's Chapel. And not Hallelujah. No, we who are saved by faith through grace, those who have been made right with God, those who are adopted into His family and are awaiting an eternal glorification, should choose to have Christ formed in them so that we look more like Christ and less like the world. And Paul is showing you a glimpse of this kind of this kind of agony in the life of a spiritual leader. The agony that takes place in the life of a faithful pastor or a faithful deacon or a faithful staff member. And Paul says, I want to see Jesus formed in you. I, I, want, I don't want you just to know Jesus as your Savior. I want to see Jesus take up residence in your heart so that you walk in the Spirit. I'm thankful to be your pastor. It's a great joy of my life. 
But I want for the day in which you stand in front of Jesus, I want you to be thankful that I was your pastor as well. I want you to be glad that you were a member of this church. And that while I was your pastor and while you were a member of this church, I want you to know that when you stand in front of Jesus, you're happy for that. Because you were provoked to love and good works. Because you were motivated in generosity. Because you were called to holiness. And because I was an example to you of godliness. And in all honesty, to me, this seems like the last thing that many pastors think about. Paul is a man who is consumed not with the filling of a building, but with the forming of Christ in the heart of the believer. I want every seat in this auditorium to be full, but more than I want every seat in this building to be full, I want Christ to be formed in your heart. And Paul is a man who is consumed with the holiness of the people who he ministered to. Paul is also a man who is fearful because he knows what sin will do in the lives of believers. Tolkien writes this way, Do not laugh at live dragons. If sin is not something to be played with. Sin is not something to be enjoyed. Sin is your enemy and it is mine. That there is an adversary and he is the devil and he walks about seeking whom he may devour. And the lifelong work of God in the heart of every believer in yours and in mine is the work of sanctification. If faithful churches and faithful deacons and faithful pastors are those who oppose worldliness, they reject sin categorically. That our worship services should be God-centered. They should be reverent. They should be tasteful. And above all, they should be biblical. That we as a church should be committed to the communication of God's Word to God's people regardless of fear or favor. This is why we strive to preach the Bible the way that we do. This is why we say things like next chapter, next verse. Because you know that I am now accountable to preaching God's Word. I was talking about this with one of our men last week, or a few weeks ago. He said, Pastor, I'm glad that this is our preaching and teaching style because it holds you as the pastor accountable to God's Word. And I must give an account to God for how I handled His Word in front of the people of God. And over time, it seems to me that we left biblical and we went after what was acceptable. That we left irreverent and we pursued relevant that we put off the ideas of preaching God's Word, of making calls to holiness, love, and good works. And we decided to preach a message that wasn't so offending to other people around us. The Gospel is offending. There is one way to God, and that way is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many of you know that's an offensive message? That's very exclusive. It's not many ways to God. It's one way to God. And that one way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have been saved, and God is your Father, and your eternity is reserved, then we should not give each other a call to just follow your heart. 
Man, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now we should, instead of giving a call to follow your heart, we should resound the call to pursue holiness in our individual lives. So how does this happen? How does this happen for them? How does this happen for you and for me? There are three ways. you got an outline so you can follow along with us. Three ways that Christ is formed in us. Three ways that Christ takes shape in our heart. That Christ begins to affect the way that we think. Affect the way that we feel. Affect the way that we act or move. He begins to affect the way that we relate to people in and around us. This is the freedom that we have in Christ, that we can be affected by Christ so that we can think the thoughts of Christ. That we might be conformed to His image. That's the idea. So how does this happen? It happens a couple ways. Number one, it happens because we are shaped by faith. But what are the conditions that cause Christ to be formed in us? We should be shaped by faith. It's really the link between verse number 19 and verse number 6. And I want you to look at it in Galatians chapter 4. Look at verse number 19. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So, so how is he formed in us? Well, look at verse number 6. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth his spirit of his son into your heart. So verse 6 says that God, when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, God sent His Spirit into your heart. And His Spirit has taken up this work in your heart and in your life. You say, what work? Look at verse number, chapter 3, verse number 5. Go back a chapter. Look at verse number 5. So He, therefore, that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth He, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. So in other words, the way that the Spirit works in our heart is He works in our heart according or by our faith. Because now this is the thing about faith inside of the church or when you're talking to Christians. Because if I asked you this morning, do you have faith in God? Your answer would be yes. We all think that we're exercising this use of our faith in our heart. Of course I have faith. Of course I have faith. That's what we would say. Well, what is it to have faith in God then? Well, it's two things. Number one, faith in God is to put your trust in God. That God knows better than you on how your life should go. That God knows better than you on what you should do with your money. That God knows better than you on what you should do with your thoughts or your free time. That God knows better than you on what you should do in raising your children. That God knows better than you. This is what it means to trust in God. Man, lean not to thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Because sometimes we can be guilty of using these Christian terms and speaking Christianese. What does it mean to have faith in God? It means to put your trust in God. That you are saying to God, you know better than me on how my life should go. 
You know better than me on what I should do with my time. You know better than me on how I should treat my neighbor. You know better than me on what I should do with my money. You know better than me on how to use my weekend. And so, God, I trust you. And I'm not leaning to my own way. I'm not thinking my own thoughts. I'm not doing it according to my own plan or desire. I'm not doing this because it's my own idea or my own desire, but because you, Lord, in your word, said that I should. I trust you in this way. And Christ is formed in you. And the way Christ is formed in you is when your trust is in the Lord, that you prefer God's way over your own way. You prefer God's way over your own way. Now, can we just pull the car over and talk about that for a second? Because I really like my own way. How many of you like the way you choose to do something, right? Yes, that's all of us. Every person in this room really likes their way. It, this, is, this, this begins in us at a very, very young age. You never sent your children to disobedient school. You never had to teach your children how to demand their own way. Now, if you really want your way, you start screaming and stomping your feet. And if they don't get it, then you go even louder. Like, ah! and then, if you, then you throw yourself on the floor and roll around, and then you get what you want. No one ever had to teach their children how to do that. But your children and my children are very good at doing that. Some of you try the same approach and you're 45. Is it, this is the thing. Is it, we believe that we know better on how our lives should go than God does. And so what does it mean to have, what does it mean to allow faith in God to shape us. What it means is that we trust that God knows better than we do on how our lives should go. That God knows better than we do on how we should use our money. That God knows better than we do on how we should help the poor. That God knows better than we do on what we should do in the weekend. Or that God knows better than we do on what we should do with our sexuality. Or God knows better than we do on how we should treat a member of the opposite sex. Or that God knows better than we do on what we should do with said desires. You see, the world, the world tells you this. No, no, no. no. Who's going to tell you what you should do or what you should be or how you should live? You should just follow your heart. Go after your feelings. Just believe in yourself and you can accomplish it. And listen, you should not go after your heart. You should not believe in yourself. You cannot fly. I don't care how much you believe you can. That's ridiculous. So putting your faith in God is saying, God, you know better than I do on how my life should go. And sanctification, this process in which we live out the salvation we have, is a continual battle of shaping and molding our lives and submitting ourselves to what God says on how I should handle myself or when God says I shouldn't handle myself in a certain way. It's the living out of that. It's mortifying the deeds of the flesh. The word mortifying literally means put to death the deeds of the flesh. Execute it. So our own natural tendencies, our own natural desires are to be angry. Our own natural desires are to attack our enemy. Our own natural desires are to do what we want, when we want, how we want. Our own natural desires say, man, you know better. Call the shots in your own life. This is what our own natural desires produce in us. 
And yet the sanctification process is learning how to say no to those things and yes to the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in line with God's word. How are we shaped by our faith? We're shaped by our faith because we put our trust in God. How are we shaped by our faith? We're shaped by our faith because of the trials that were appointed by God. So all of Paul's really big theological arguments that he's making in this passage, it really boils down here in chapter 4 to a struggle, a trial that Paul had in his life. It starts in verse number 12, actually. That, brethren, I beseech you, be as, I, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured at me at all. And ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at first. And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness which ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, that ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. And so Paul is saying, I was going through this, through this trial. I was going through this suffering. I was experiencing this very difficult physical thing. And I desired to retreat. And I desired to go away. And I desired to go to my own, do my own thing. But it was necessary for me to stay with you. So God appointed this trial in my life. So I went through this very difficult thing. And while I was going through this suffering, while I was going through the trial, while I was going through this difficult thing, you saw that, and you didn't run from me, but you ran to me. You see, he's saying, God gave me this trial. God gave me this burden to give me a ministry. That's what he said. God gave me this trial. God gave me this burden to give me a ministry. And by the way, God is doing that same thing in your trials and in your suffering and in your bad news as well. That in the hurt and in the pain and with the struggle and in the suffering, man, God is using that for your good. Not just that, but he is using it so that it will cause good to those around you. The trial was appointed by God. And notice, while Paul went through the trial, there was, there was faith that took root in their hearts as they watched Paul go through his trial. What does that teach us? That teaches us that we can go through very difficult situations. We can go through very difficult trials. We can go through very difficult things. And we can keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can trust that he knows better on how our lives should go. That he is God over all. He's doing what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And my job as his son is to just believe he knows best. That is true with the medical diagnosis you just got last week. And that is true with the financial bad news you just received. That, that is true for every relationship you have in this life. That God brings certain seasons into our lives where He tries our faith, where He builds us up. And when we allow our faith in Him to take shape 
in our hearts and lives, then we can see that even in the trial, even in the difficulty, even in the suffering, God is still getting glory and honor for all that's done and all that's said. How many of you in the room say, Pastor, I've learned that lesson. I've learned that lesson. It was shaped. How, how, how then do we grow in our sanctification? We're shaped by our faith. Number two, we're shaped by our friends. Evil communication corrupts good manners. Look, look at the text. Look what he says in verse number 16. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Who in your life, look here, who in your life tells you the truth? You're faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And who is that person in your life who you have given them permission to tell you the truth about you. He said most people don't want anybody to tell them that. Because most people look to their friends to only affirm them, build them up, tell them nice things about themselves, pat me on my back, tell me the stuff that I want to hear. That's how most relationships go. No, 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 this, this Paul says, man, am I become your enemy because all of a sudden now I tell you the truth? Meaning, I am your friend if I tell you the truth. I'm your enemy if I tell you a lie. It is no friend at all who just lies to you over and over about the decisions you're making and how they are negatively affecting your life. As a fact, let's, let's think of this in terms of parenting. If you let your children play on the 710, you are not a good parent. How many of you say, Pastor, that's true? Let me see. Okay, about half the room raised their hand. The other half did it. I really worry about you. And you are not allowed to watch our children in the children's department, okay? It is, it is, it is what, what would that be called? If you let your child play on the 710, what's that called? It's called negligence. It's negligence. Why? Because, man, as this child's parent, you should know that this is not a safe place for them to play. And what does, that, what does that necessitate? What does that, what does that make us have to do? It makes us have to say no to our children when they say they want to play on the 710. It's not bad parenting to tell your child no. It's good parenting to say no. You cannot play on the 710. We got a playground. We can find the grass. We can go to the beach. You can play in your bedroom. The 710 is out. That's, that's good parenting. It's good friending when your friend is playing in the middle of the 710 and you tell them you're, you're doing things in your life that are destructive and that are not good for your spiritual growth. And it's no friend at all who just lets you play in the middle of the 710 and goes, yeah, but you look cute and I liked your Facebook post. Just, just go ahead and ruin and wreck your marriage, but hey, thumbs up for me. That's no friend at all. That's an enemy. Am I becoming your enemy because I tell you the truth? Man, we live in a, we live with this spirit in our day and age. Most people don't want to hear the truth. 
They want to follow their feelings, and you're really infringing on me, and I really wanted to play on the 710 anyway. I don't see anything wrong with it, and I just feel like I should be able to play on the 710. Well, you can feel that way, and let me tell you what you'll feel right after that. Wah, wah, flat, right? And Paul says, there are those, look at this, there are those who, look at verse 17. There are those who zealously affect you, but not well. And there are those who are zealously affecting the people at Galatia, but they are not, a, they are not provoking them to love and good works. They're not moving them on to Christ's likeness. They're not moving them toward godliness and holiness. They're affecting them not well. It's a good thing to be affected. In fact, he says that in verse number 18. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. It's good to be zealously affected in good areas and in, and in or for good things. So we're shaped by our friends. We're going to have to be done with this, but we're shaped by our friends. Two ideas here. Number one, how, how do we do this? Number one, as a friend, man, we, we pray. We ask God for courage even when it is not pop, even when it is unpopular. We pray for courage even when it is unpopular. One of the indicators that we are not progressing in our sanctification, one of the indicators that we're not moving toward God but away from Him, is that we do not surround ourselves with people who tell us what we need to hear. We only surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. And one of the ways in which we do move on to sanctification, one of the ways we do move toward where God would have for us to go, one of the ways we do conform to the image of his son, one of the ways he is shaped inside of us is when we surround ourselves with people who tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want to hear. So again, I ask the question, who is that friend for you? Who is that friend for you? And we also ask for clarity. We ask God to give us courage when it's unpopular, but we also ask God to give us clarity for His purposes. That's really verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. That God is doing something. He is shaping. He's, he's forming them. Notice, but Paul wants them to be zealously affected not just when he is there. Verse 18, not only when I am present. Look at verse 20. I desire to be present. But not only when I press, I, I want to be there to help you walk through these things, but it's necessary in your spiritual maturity for you to recognize that there are people in and around your life who are affecting you negatively, not affecting you positively, and you are, they're allowing you to do destructive things in your life, and you should be able to stay away from that when I'm there or not there. This is the desire of every parent in the room for their children that our children would grow in maturity and understanding that as they grow and as they mature and as they age, that they realize there are things in their lives that affect them negatively, that move them away from God and good, and we desire that they show the maturity to recognize that and to run away from it. They're turning the lights off on me, so apparently I'm over time. But how is Christ formed in us? 
Christ is formed in us because he's shaped by our faith. Christ is formed in us because in, in that we're shaped by our friends. Last one, I got to be done. Christ is formed in us because we're, he's shaped by our focus. Notice what he wants for them. Look at verse number 19. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Till Christ be formed in you. Let, let me just say it on this, at, at this level on this one. Notice where the work is done. Notice where the work is done. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ is formed, where is the work done? In the heart. Till Christ is formed in you. This is why external behavior modification does not work. Just getting someone to outwardly conform to something for a time isn't enough. It has to take root in the heart until Christ is formed in you. And when Christ is formed in you, when it takes root in the heart, when it grabs hold of the heart, when it begins in the inward part of the man, then it works its way out. See, if you're walking in the Spirit, if Christ is being formed in you, if in your heart you're full of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law, if you are full of these things in your heart, guess what? It will show on your face. If you have joy in your heart, you will not be grumpy with how you treat your neighbor. If you have the love of God in your heart, it will show in the way that you treat your enemies. If you have an understanding of God's grace, and that understanding of God's grace is taking a hold of your heart, it's grabbed root, guess what? It will show in your generosity. But till Christ be formed in you. Oh, my great prayer for every person in this room. So Christ be formed in you. So Christ be formed in you. And I want Christ to be formed in you so that you're shaped to look like him, not so that you're shaped to look like me. The goal is not so you look like me or I look like you or we look like each other. The goal is we should all look like Christ. Oh, there's more on that, but we'll have to wait for next week. But I wonder, is Christ being formed in you? Is Christ being formed in you?